morning. Jonah 1, 1 through 17, 2, 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nevia, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on what account, whose account, this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he has told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done it as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered the sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Matt Creasy. I am one of the pastoral interns, one of the other pastoral interns here at Central Western Church. I'm talking to you while I'm moving things out of the way. Those of you that know me, I move a lot, so I don't want to knock anything over. Um, here we go. 
Uh, but anyway, so as Davis said earlier during our announcements, Eric, our senior pastor, is out of town this week and next week, which means we get to do whatever we want. <laughs> if you're new, that is a joke. Please don't tell my boss I said that. We're going to cut that out of the recording, right? Cool. Okay, so we just finished up a series in the book of Genesis. Uh, and when Eric gets back in two weeks, we're going to start the season of Advent. So for the next two weeks, we're going to do a little jaunt through another Old Testament book, the book of Jonah. Now, unfortunately, two weeks is really not long enough to see everything that there is to see in the book of Jonah. Despite being only four chapters long, Jonah is a very rich book. It's very, very dense. There's a lot that we could see. So instead, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of focus down on one theme that runs right through the book of Jonah. And we're going to focus on that theme. And that is the theme of God's grace. Okay? Uh, to say it differently, we are going to study God's grace through the lens of the book of Jonah. Okay? So buckle in. Here we go. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into our passage. Uh, Father... Help, I need you. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you. In your precious son's name, amen. Hey, Ryan. What's up, man? Um, so, it's interesting. So, as Christians, we talk a lot about the grace of God. Uh, we, we, we say it a lot. We sing songs about it. We... Uh, we name churches grace. We name our children grace. Uh, so, but a lot of times we don't end up explaining what it is we're talking about. And I wonder if people who are new to Christianity, who are not Christians, walk away wondering, what do they mean? When they talk about God's grace, what, what do they actually mean? Uh, so Jonah is a really helpful book, especially Jonah chapter 1. Because in chapter 1, Jonah raises the question how do we actually experience God's grace? How do we actually, in our real-time, real-space lives, experience the grace of God? Right? So that is the question on the table, and that's the question that I want us to look for as we explore this passage together. All right? So, but before we get to the question, let's first look at the person. Who is Jonah? Who is this guy? Well, in verse 1... Uh, the text tells us that Jonah is a prophet. Now, Jonah is actually one of the minor prophets. Minor, in this case, doesn't mean, like, less of a prophet. It just means short. So do you know that, like, the last one-third of your Old Testament, all those books that you've never read, books like Habakkuk, Haggai, Nahum, Amos, you guys you know all those? Jonah's in that group. Those are the minor prophets. Okay, and Jonah actually shows up in another Old Testament book, the book of 2 Kings, which is part of a chronological history of Israel and its monarchs. So we actually know that the rough time frame that Jonah was alive. Okay, so that's Jonah. So what happens to Jonah? Well, God comes to him and gives him a message that he wants Jonah to deliver. Now, that's not unusual. Jonah is a prophet. That's kind of in the job description of a prophet. God gives you a message, and then you relay that message to who God tells you to give it to. Now, what's unusual, though, is that God tells Jonah to give the message to the city of Nineveh. 
Now, we're going to talk a lot more about Nineveh next week, but just for frame of reference today, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Okay? So, not the people of God, which would have, what Jonah would have expected. And in fact, these would have been the enemies of God's people. Okay? So, Jonah, how does he respond to God's request? Well, he's not very happy about it. Um, God says, Jonah, I want you to go. And Jonah says, no. And he goes down to the port city of Joppa, and he gets on a boat headed for Tarshish. Now, this is really hard for us to feel, because neither Nineveh nor Tarshish actually exist anymore in our modern world. They are not cities in our world anymore, so we don't really have a frame of reference. So to understand this, I'm going to need you all to put on your geography hats for a minute. For those of you that really did not like geography, I'm sorry. Bear with me. We'll get through this together, I promise. Okay. So Nineveh, we're going to pretend for a second that I'm like standing in front of a giant map. Okay. Nineveh is over here, right? And it is in what we would now call the country of Iraq. Okay. And actually Mosul, Iraq is the closest modern day city to where Nineveh used to be. So that's like north and west of Israel. Okay. Tarshish used to be on the southern coast of Spain. So if you draw a straight line, that is a distance of over 3,000 miles at a time when there are no planes, there are no trains, there are no automobiles, steamboats, or even bicycles. These two places, are they're worlds apart. And keep in mind, the Americas had not been discovered yet. So if... In Jonah's, like, mental map of the world, what would have been at the very center of the map? Well, it would have been Jerusalem. Actually, there are a lot of ancient maps that we look to that place Israel at the very center of the world. It kind of exists in the middle of all these trade routes in the ancient world, which might tell us something about God's purposes for the people of Israel. But that's a sermon for another day. Okay. Sorry. Israel's at the center. Jerusalem is at the center. What would have been at the very, very edge? Well, Tarshish. What's past Tarshish in Jonah's mind? Sea monsters? I don't know. Nothing. So people in our day and age talk about getting off the grid. You guys ever heard about this? Where you get rid of your phone, you get rid of your paper trail, you get rid of all the things that people could like connect to you so it's as if you don't exist anymore, right? Jonah is literally trying to get off of the grid. He is literally trying to get off of the map. Here's the point. Jonah is not being indecisive about his obedience. He's not being wishy-washy. This is deliberate disobedience. This is a very rude hand gesture to the Almighty God. Jonah is in high rebellion. He is turning... Do you notice in in verse 3 how it says, away from the presence of the Lord twice? The text is telling us that Jonah is getting away from God as far as he can conceivably think of. Okay? Jonah is in rebellion. But unfortunately for Jonah, matters get worse. So here they are on this boat in the Mediterranean Sea, and a storm comes. And it's not just any storm, it is a mighty tempest. I really like that translation, mighty tempest, right? Now, how do we know it's a mighty tempest? Well, the sailors are afraid. Now, 
Keep in mind, uh, these guys made their living. It was their job to sail the entire breadth of the Mediterranean Sea. That was a big deal back then. So these guys would have been experts, expert sailors. So they would have been very familiar with wind and rain and choppy water, okay? And these guys are losing it. They're just freaking out. What do we call it when the experts are freaking out? I would call that a crisis. Is that fair? That, they are in a crisis. And what's really interesting, if you look at verse 5, we see the entire range of human response to crisis. What's the first thing that we see? Well, the sailors are chucking cargo overboard, right? Now, that cargo is their livelihood. That cargo doesn't reach Tarshish. Sorry, Tarshish is over here. Sorry. If that cargo doesn't get to Tarshish, they don't get paid. These men are literally throwing their money at the problem. We do the same thing. When a crisis hits, we reach for a practical solution, don't we? We look up what the experts have to say. We look up what Wikipedia has to say. We start throwing our money, our time, our resources, our know-how to fix the problem. Especially as Americans. We like to fix it. Right? Uh, And sometimes it works. But unfortunately, for the sailors, their practical solutions don't work. So what do they do next? Well, they reach for a religious solution. They start praying to every possible deity that they could think of. They're going through the Rolodex of deities. If you don't know what a Rolodex is, imagine uh, your iPhone contact list. That makes me feel really old explaining that. Okay, so they're just trying to get a god on the phone, okay? And, And we do the same thing. When a crisis hits, we get more religious, don't we? We pray more. We read our Bibles more. We go to church. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. Maybe you're here because a crisis has hit and you're hoping that by coming, God will take away the crisis. We do the same thing. Unfortunately, for the sailors, their religious solutions don't work. What is Jonah doing? How is he managing the crisis? He's asleep. Does that seem odd to you? I mean, this storm is literally breaking the ship to pieces and homeboy is asleep. Now, there's a lot, there's a lot of commentators that t- try to like, think about, okay, why, how is he sleeping? What happened? Right? And there's a lot of differing opinions. I'm going to give you my opinion, which is the right one. Okay? I'm going to give you my opinion about what is up with Jonah. How is he able to sleep? I think Jonah was depressed. I think Jonah is doing something that we might call numbing. If you have ever been depressed, if you know anybody who's been depressed, you will know the desire to just sleep through your day. And what's going on there? It's life is so painful that I would rather just not feel anything than have to feel that. And we don't, and it's not just sleep. We use lots of things to numb ourselves. We use food. Briar's ice cream is a favorite of mine. We use Netflix or Hulu or social media, Facebook, Instagram. We use alcohol, drugs. We use exercise. 
all manner of things, but what we are doing is we are trying to prevent ourselves from feeling the pain of the crisis. Okay? Unfortunately for Jonah, the sailors will not let him continue his numbing. So, what do they do? What are they left with? Well, the sailors do the very thing that we do when all of our other crisis management techniques fail us. They start looking for someone to blame. And so they cast lots, which is basically an ancient way of drawing straws. It's just a way of randomly choosing somebody. But because our God is not only the Lord of the weather, he is also the Lord of statistical mathematics. <laughs> the lot falls on Jonah. And we get to the scene, and I love this scene. It's just, and always, every time I read it, I just kind of go, like with a, uh, wow. They, here they are, the sailors, verse 9. They got their fingers in his face, and they're giving him the full interrogation All 20 questions. Who are you? Where are you from? Why is this happening? Explain yourself, sir. Right? Now, what does Jonah say? He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't deflect their questions. He doesn't try to redirect the conversation to something else. He boldly and confidently answers their questions. Verse 9. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. God of heaven, maker of the sea and the dry land. That is a bold confession of faith. And it's biblically accurate. You, You see that language? God of heaven, maker of the sea and the dry land. It sounds like Jonah is quoting something, doesn't it? Both Psalm 95 and Psalm 146 use really, really similar language. And that all of those passages sound like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? Jonah clearly knows his Bible. And he is confessing biblically accurate doctrine to these pagan sailors. Right? Jonah knows his Bible so well. In fact, I bet you that he knew Psalm 139. Psalm 139 says, Where will I flee? From your spirit, O Lord. And where can I hide from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, even there you are. If I rise on the wings of the morning and I sail to the farthest reaches of the sea, even there surely your hand will guide me. I bet Jonah could have quoted that psalm to these sailors on the boat, heading for the farthest reaches of the sea. Do you see Jonah's problem? Jonah is a hypocrite. Jonah's walk and his talk are not aligned. His confession is in conflict with the direction of his life. Okay? Now, before we judge Jonah... Before we throw stones and just write him off as like, boy, that guy has issues. Hold on. Keep this in mind. Almost every Old Testament scholar agrees that the author of the book of Jonah is the prophet Jonah. What that means is that the book of Jonah is not a criticism. It's a confession. 
Jonah is telling us his story and inviting us, the reader, to find ourselves in it. Because the truth is, guys, we're just like Jonah. We, too, are hypocrites, and especially us. And I I don't mean especially us like the particular people in this room necessarily. What I mean is our tradition. American, Protestant, Evangelical, dare I say it, Presbyterian. We are the very kind of people that will show up to church every Sunday morning and we will confess with our mouths, Jesus Christ is Lord. And at the same moment, our lives are professing, I am the Lord of my money, my sexuality, my career, my comfort, and my kids. We are the very kind of people that will confess with our mouths, Ephesians 2. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith. This is not of works. It is a gift from God so that no one can boast. And at that very moment, our lives are professing, it is by my hard work and my effective prayers and my Bible reading and the way that I vote, the way that I dress, the way that I present myself to society that I am justified. We are the very kind of people that will confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ has brought down the dividing wall of hostility and yet our lives are professing. Well, you know, but really there are just some of us Christians that really get it, that really ha- get, do the Christian thing, and then there are those that just, I don't know, they don't really get it. We are hypocrites. I'm a hypocrite. We're just like Jonah. What is Jonah telling us about the grace of God? How do we experience the grace of God? We experience the grace of God in the places and the circumstances of our lives that we most desperately need it. In our rebellion, in our hypocrisy, But that doesn't quite answer the question, does it? That answers the where, but it doesn't answer the how. What does God actually do about our rebellion and our hypocrisy? How do we experience the grace of God? Well, what's happening with Jonah? Well, what do we see? God is very involved in the goings-on of Jonah's life. In verse 4, we find out that storm was not a random storm. It was not a coincidence God sent the storm. Actually, the, the text says it. He hurled it like a spear. Okay? He hurls it. And at the end of chapter 1, in verse 17, God appoints a fish. You know, like a king appoints a servant to go and do his bidding. God does that with a giant fish. And it's not printed in your bulletin, but in chapter 4, God does the exact same thing with a plant, a worm, and a wind. God is controlling the circumstances of Jonah's life. Does that freak you out? That kind of freaks me out. Do you see what Jonah is saying? Okay, think about the plant. For, again, not in your bulletin. Think about the plant and the worm in chapter 4. What happens? God tells the plant to grow. And then he tells the worm to go eat the plant. It eats it and the plant dies. That's a really everyday normal occurrence. That is literally happening right now. Somewhere in the world. 
okay? Do you realize what, that, what Jonah is saying? That the events, the circumstances of our life are not random. They are not coincidence. They are not just chaotic events that happen in an uncaring, unordered universe. Things happen because God makes them happen. The theological word that we use for this is sovereignty. God is sovereign over everything that happens in all of history. But that also means that he is sovereign over the storm. The crisis that Jonah and the sailors are experiencing is not a coincidence. It is not a random event in a chaotic and unpredictable universe. The storm is God's servant. He sent it. Think about the crisis, the crises, plural, that we experience in life. There's a layoff at work. And you've been without a job for weeks and months. And the resources are drying up and there are no prospects on the horizon. You or a loved one get a call from the doctor that things are not getting better. Miscarriage. Your house burns down. Your city floods. Your marriage is literally hanging by a thread. Or maybe the thread has already snapped and you're in the middle of a divorce. Jonah is telling us that we experience these things not by accident, but God lets them happen. Now, I need to say this, because it just brings up this question. The Bible presents us with a real tension. The Bible says at the exact same time, completely sovereign over everything that happens in all of human history, and God is not responsible for evil. If that boggles your brain, you are in good company. I cannot explain that to you. It is just the reality that the Bible gives. This is the world that we live in. God is sovereign over everything that happens. And he is not the source of evil. Do you guys remember last week in Genesis chapter 50? What does Joseph say to his brothers? He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God didn't respond to the evil. He planned it. And yet he's not responsible for it. It's just a mystery. Okay? Um, how do we experience the grace of God? We experience the grace of God in the places and circumstances of our life that we most desperately need it. And we experience the grace of God through the circumstances of our lives, especially the storms. Now that raises a really big question for us. Why? Why would God, if he really is sovereign over everything that happens in all of human history, why would God let us go through things like that? Why would he let such painful and hurtful things happen to us? That's a really good and big question. Um, well, what does Jonah think? Well, if you look in verse 12, uh, you know, here the sailors ask Jonah, what do we have to do to make the storm stop? And what does Jonah say? 
He says, throw me in. Hurl me into the sea. Now, keep in mind, Jonah has never read the book of Jonah. Right? He's never heard a story about a man getting thrown into an ocean, swallowed by a giant fish, and then barfed up three days later. That is not an option in his brain. So when he says, throw me into the sea, what does Jonah expect? He expects to die. Jonah interprets the storm as God trying to kill him. Jonah believes that God sent the storm in order to get him. And we do the same thing. When, uh, When you're in a crisis... What's the, like, bitter cry of your heart? Why is this happening to me? It feels like punishment, doesn't it? Why is it that we reach for religious solutions when crises happen? Well, the logic is, well, I must have done something bad, and so I must, therefore, do something good in order to make God happy with me again. Right? Now, Why do we think that? Why does Jonah think that God's trying to kill him? Well, we did say earlier that Jonah knows his Bible, doesn't he? And the Bible is very clear. The consequence of rebellion against the Creator is death. If God made everything that exists, which he did, that would include you and me, which it does. And when we, God's creatures... Stop living our lives in the manner that God created us to live them. We relinquish the right to continue living in God's world. The consequences of rebellion is death. But is that what God is up to? Is Jonah's destruction God's agenda? Well, if God had only sent the storm, maybe. But God also sent a fish. Jonah had no idea, but God sent the storm in order to get Jonah into a fish, and he sent the fish to get Jonah back to dry land where he belonged. You see, friends, God wasn't out to get Jonah. He wanted to get him back. He wasn't about Jonah's Destruction, he was about his restoration. God loved Jonah. He loved him so much that he would, could not, would not just watch Jonah sail off the deep end. He would not leave him in his hypocrisy and his rebellion. And because he cares so much more about our character than than he is about our temporary comfort. He sent a storm to get Jonah in the fish, to get Jonah back to dry land where he belonged. God loves you. He loves you so much that he will not leave you where you are. And he will use all of the means at his disposal, which... Because he's God is everything. He will use all of the means at his disposal to get you back 
to where you belong, to restore you to the human being that he always created you to be. How do we experience the grace of God? We experience the grace of God in the circumstances and places in our life that we most desperately need it. And we experience the grace of God through the circumstances of our lives, especially the storms. And God sends the storms not in order to get us, but in order to get us back. But that leaves us with one lingering question, doesn't it? How do we know? How do we know that's God's agenda? I mean, because, you know, God did that for Jonah, right? But how do I know that he, that's what he's about in my life? How do I know that God is actually concerned about me and my good when he sends the crisis? Because it sure feels like he's punishing me. And, you know, Christians really like to throw around Romans 8. God works out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But when you're in the crisis, that really feels like a platitude, doesn't it? Like, that just feels like a really cheap platitude. How do we know that God is out for our good. Because it's really easy for God to sit up there in heaven, on high, on his throne, and say, hey, don't worry, I'm doing this for your good. When he's not the one who has to suffer the storm. He's not the one with boots on the ground and skin in the game. Friend, don't you see? Our God knows exactly what you are feeling. Because our God literally, actually, physically puts skin in the game through Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus Christ went through, suffered the storm. He went through the ultimate crisis of God's wrath against hypocrisy and rebellion. Do you want to know what it actually looks like for God to punish your sin? Do you want to know what it actually looks like for God to get someone because of their rebellion? Look at Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, crying out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer friends, is so that we would not be forsaken. The ultimate agenda of God has been infinitely, definitively, once and for all, revealed to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. We know the end game. Restoration. Resurrection. God loves you so much that he will not rest. He will not stop. He will not let up until each and every one of us is shining and glorious and perfect like Jesus Christ himself. Till all things are made new. So what does that mean for us? That means that when the crisis comes... And it will come. If it hasn't already, the crisis will come. The crises, plural, probably. When they come, 
God will not offer us an explanation. Jonah had no idea what was happening until three days later when he was lying on a beach in a puddle of fish vomit. God does not offer us explanations. He offers us himself so that when the crisis comes, we can lean into it. We don't have to numb ourselves. We don't have to try to appease God with a bunch of frenetic religious activity. And we don't have to put all of our eggs into the practical solutions basket. We can trust him and cling to him. We can even, dare I say it, jump into the swirling waters of a raging sea. Not because we know exactly how the storm is going to work out, but because we know the Lord of the storm. Even when it feels like the storm is going to kill you, you can trust him. How do we experience the grace of God? We experience the grace of God in the places and circumstances of our lives that we most desperately need it. And we experience the grace of God through the circumstances of our lives, especially the storms. And God sends the storms into our lives, not in order to get us, but in order to get us back. And we can trust him amidst the storm because he sent Jesus Christ. Now, before we close, I need to say one last thing. I think this is really important. In Jonah's life, there was a direct connection between the crisis and his disobedience. There was a nice straight line between those two things. That is sometimes true in our life. Sometimes God sends a crisis in direct response to your rebellion. But that is not often the case. Many times we experience a crisis and there's not a nice straight line. Okay? I would actually offer up another book of the Bible, Job. Both Jonah and Job experience a crisis. Job experienced a horrific crisis. But the two men are very different. Job, relatively speaking, was a righteous man. Compared to the people around him at his day and age, he loved God and he obeyed God. Not perfectly, but he did. And God sent the crisis anyway. But both Jonah and Job experienced restoration at the end. Okay? So that's the point, is that God is in control of the storm. He does send them, but he always sends them unto our restoration. God sent the storm to get Jonah into a fish in order to get Jonah back to dry land where he belonged. And God sends storms into our lives in order to get us deeper into Jesus. And he sent Jesus into the world, not in order to condemn the world, but in order to save it. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us so much, that you are far more concerned with our character and our eternal holiness than you are about our comfort and our temporary pain, and that you will send such things into our lives, exactly the things that we need. And we pray, God, that if, I pray for all of my brothers and sisters here in this room, 
that when we experience the crisis, for those especially right now experiencing the crisis, that you would give them your Holy Spirit to comfort them and enable them to trust you, to cling to you. That they would know with deep assurance that you don't do these things because you're out to get us, but because you love us and are out to get us back. Thank you, Father. We love you. We praise your magnificent name in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.